Welcome to the Lincoln Road Chapel Podcast. We're a church here in Waterloo that exists to become a thriving community of Christ followers. Our mission is to love God, make disciples, and serve our neighborhood, city, and the world. We meet every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., and we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about Sunday morning worship, our ministries, or how to connect in community, visit our website at lrc.church. Okay, good. It's good to be with you again this morning, and um, if you weren't here earlier, my name is Reg Lewicki, and it's always a pleasure for me to um, yeah, open up Scripture and share Scripture, and uh, yeah, for us to be changed by uh, God's Word. And so this morning, as we're um, saying goodbye to our children, we are continuing uh, in uh, the Psalms, and we um, are in the series called Psalms for the Summer, and today we're in Psalm 34. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Psalm 34 right now. Uh, if you have a device, you can scroll to it. It'll be on the screen in a bit. We're going to get to the Psalm in just a second, but I thought I would just give you a heads up uh, to find it first. And uh, Psalm 34 is a psalm or a poem that's attributed to David. And if you've, like, you're like the sword drill uh, captain, like if you're already there, uh, you can see there's this little heading, right? There's this heading above Psalm 34, and it says that it's uh, attributed uh, to a specific event in David's life. And there are 13 psalms that are connected to various events in the story of David, and this is one of them. And you can see that it says it's connected to a story where David escaped uh, a Philistine king by pretending to be insane. And um, I want to talk about that for a second, and I want to talk a little bit about David's life and how he got to that point, because that seems like a very kind of a strange occurrence. And so later on, uh, if you want to read this whole account, you can find it in 1 Samuel 21, and it's verses 10 to 15, which is a short little account. But, um, you know, I want to talk about David's life. And David, I think, is I'm not going to pull the audience, but David is probably a a character that many, if not most of us, are familiar with, right? He's a a pretty well-known, at least if you went through Sunday school, he's a pretty well-known Sunday school character. And um, maybe you know that the first time that we're invited to David, he's introduced to David. He is a young man. He's a boy. He's um, out in the fields. He's the youngest of his father's uh, sons, and he is his father's shepherd, which means he's out in the field, and he's tending to the sheep, and in many ways, he's kind of like the runt. He's kind of been um, rejected or neglected. He's kind of cast aside. He's in this kind of low position, and there's this account where uh, he's summoned home to uh, his father's house where there's a gathering going to be taking place. And I don't know, maybe a servant comes and tells him you need to go and I'll watch the sheep in your stead. But he hurries home and when he gets there, he finds that his father and all his brothers are gathered there. And what's very clear to him is that they've been there for a while, which would tell David that he was sort of like a late invite, right? He was an afterthought, um, kind of late to the party. And uh, while he's sort of trying to suss out what's happening, he realizes that in the middle of the crowd is Samuel, the great judge of Israel. And he's got a vial of oil, and he walks over to David, and he pours the oil over his head, and he anoints him. He says, you will be the next king of Israel, this young boy. You will be the next king of Israel. God Uh, rejected Saul as king and has chosen David to replace him. And this ushers into David's life a period that is characterized by waiting. If you're in a period of waiting, it's good to know that many of the characters in Scripture experience this as well. That David uh, isn't to um, take it for himself. He's supposed to wait patiently for God to open the doors for this to be realized. And what I find so intriguing is that even though he knows that he's going to be king, David seemingly returns to being a shepherd. He knows that he's going to be the most powerful person in the country, and he goes back to this lowly position. 
Uh, some time passes and war breaks out between Israel and the Philistines. That was common in those days. And, and so David, again, is sent by his brothers. He says, you need to go to the front lines. Your brothers are fighting. Um, here, bring some bread and cheese and get word of the battle. And this is the great story, right? We know this story. This is the one big Sunday school story. He gets there and he realizes that there's no battle happening. And he's confused. And it turns out that the Philistines have decided that they want to settle the conflict in a one-to-one -one battle. And so Goliath of Gath, this giant of a man, keeps walking out into the middle of the field and, and challenging any one soldier in Israel. Would you come and fight me? Let's just settle it right, there, right here, one-on-one, -on -one, and no one will. They're afraid. And you know the story that somehow young David convinces all these battle-hardened warriors, I can do this. I can do this. God is with me. And he goes and he scoops up five stones and he takes a sling and he saunters down into the valley and with one stone, he strikes Goliath down. He picks up this giant sword and he beheads him. Victory for Israel. This catapults David onto the national stage. He's a national hero. He's rescued his people. People adore him. And during this time, we're told that King Saul has entered into a dark period of life. He knows that God has rejected him. And the Bible tells us that he's uh, tormented by an evil spirit. And what we see happening is that he's struggling with paranoia. He's struggling with fear. He's struggling with rage. He's got all these dark thoughts and, and all this anxiety. And, and, and so David gets summoned again to his service. Turns out that David is a skilled harp player. And so David comes and he plays these soothing songs and it kind of calms Saul down. And what's interesting is you got, on the one hand, Saul is listening. He's stuck in this sort of middle ground of listening to this calm music that David is playing, but then also hearing the folk songs coming in off the street that are singing, Saul is good, but David is great. And there's this inner turmoil for Saul. And then one day he just snaps and he grabs a spear and he hurls it at David. David's just minding his own business, just plucking away at cords. He narrowly escapes and this uh, opens up another period of David's life where he's not only waiting, but now he's on the run. He's being hunted by King Saul. And so David runs and he ends up in the town of Nob. And Nob was uh, special in this day because this is where the tabernacle had been uh, moved to. And uh, through some measure of deception, if you read the text, uh, David convinces the, the priest to allow him to eat the consecrated bread. And then he asks him if there's any weapons on hand. And I, this is like the weirdest question you can walk into a church and ask and be like, uh, are there any weapons here? And if you think that's not a weird question, you should take Aaron's peace course. Um, because there aren't, there, full disclosure, there's no weapons uh, here. But, but there was there, and, and, and the weapon that was there was the very sword of Goliath that David had used to behead the giant. And so he convinces the priest to give him the sword. And so he, he thinks to himself, where am I going to hide? Saul's looking for me. Where am I going to hide that Saul would never think about looking? And so he straps this oversized sword to his side, and he pulls up his cloak hood, and he settles in the town of Gath. Of the Philistines. Think about that. David is on the run. He's afraid. He's somewhat desperate. And so he lies to a priest and then he moves not just in enemy territory, but he settles down in the hometown of the giant Goliath. Whenever we go to the cottage there, we, we always kind of take back roads and we go through these little towns in Ontario. And in every little town in Ontario, there's a sign that says whatever, like Moncton or, or, or Monroe or whatever. And underneath, there's this, little, there's this little thing that says the home of and some NHL hockey player, right? Some young kid who made it and he played for I don't know how many seasons in, in the NHL, but he's there. He's on his hometown sign. You know, you walk into Gath and it says like the home of Goliath, the great battle warrior, 
may he rest in peace, right? And so this is the place that David uh, shows up to, to hunker down, to hide. And he's walking around with Goliath's sword strapped to his side. Like, I don't know how much he thought this through. Because it goes exactly how you think it might go. First of all, people are struck by the fact that a Hebrew's moved into town, and he's got this giant sword, and they're like, that's kind of sketchy. And then they start looking a little bit closer and a little bit closer, and they say, we know that sword. That is the sword of Goliath. And so they put two and two together, realizing this is David, and David is seized, and he is brought before the king. And I'm not sure if you've ever been backed into a corner. I don't know what the most desperate situation you've ever been in, but desperate situations often require desperate action. And so David is thinking, how am I going to get out of this? And so his brilliant plan is, I'll just act like I'm crazy. I will just be insane. And so he goes off. He begins to, to like scratch at the door frames. He begins to drool all over himself. He's muttering. He's just carrying on. And this is a real risk because he's in a vulnerable situation here. The king could just be like, just take him outside and kill him. But he doesn't. Against all odds, the king shakes his head in disgust and says, don't we have enough crazy people in town? Get rid of him. And he is released and he is freed and he is sent on his way. And this, strangely enough, is the account out of which Psalm 34 is written. And I tell you all of this backstory about David, A, because it's pretty fun, but also because I want us to get a sense of the fact that David has seen some things in his life, right? He's experienced some stuff. And so the things that we're going to hear him write, this is not theoretical. This is not philosophical. This is his lived experience. He has been in some precarious situations. And even though he's been promised by God a bright and promising future, that doesn't mean that hardship is eliminated. It doesn't mean that it's always smooth sailing. And as this story indicates, there's always in life some measure of fear, some measure of desperation, and we see that in David's life. And it actually leads him seemingly to take matters into his own hands. And I want us to come back to that again near the end. But this is Psalm 4. If you've turned there, I hope you have. This is Psalm 34. We're going to read it together. It says this, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord, they lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to the cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
A righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. He protects all their bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34. As you look at this poem that's been written, you can see that it's been divided into three sections or in three movements. They're right up there. So first thing is that David is, is bearing testimony. He is telling the audience what God has personally done for him. Secondly, we see that David is providing instruction and wisdom. He's saying to his audience, there's some stuff you need to know, and there's a way that you should live appropriately in light of who God is. And then finally, he provides this idea of assurance around who God is and how God acts towards those who belong to him. And so we're going to walk through these three sections together this morning and think of them in terms of testimony, instruction, and hope. And so the first idea is that David begins by declaring praise to God. He gives testimony for who God is and what he has done. He begins, he says, I will bless the Lord or extol the Lord at all times. I will praise him. His praise will always be on my lips. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is why is this David's posture towards God? Well, he continues and he says this, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. As we said, this has been the story of David's life. We've talked about it. We've looked at the narrative landscape from the time he was a a young boy, a shepherd, to the time that he is writing the psalm. And David is a man who has seen some things. And even though he knows that God has plans for him and it's a glorious future, his overall future is bright, it doesn't mean that the hardship is eliminated. It doesn't mean that life isn't hard. Far from it. In fact, it seems that his life gets a little more unruly after Samuel anoints him. He gets the good news that he'll be king, and then life gets even more difficult. And so as he thinks back over his history, he can point to times when as a young boy, maybe he was in the fields and and a bear or a lion came up and he had to, to drive it away or kill them. His is a story maybe of of loneliness, right? He's the youngest son. He's kind of neglected. He's left in the fields by himself. As a young man, he remembers the story of walking down to that valley, believing that God was with him and scooping up those stones and facing off against Goliath, uh, a man who who was not just um, more trained in the art of war than he was, but exponentially larger and stronger than he was, and he faced him down. He's gone on military expeditions for King Saul. And now he finds that the same king has turned on him, is hunting him, throwing spears at him, trying to track him down. He's hiding in caves. And now he's a man dragged before the king of his enemies. And he, this is a man who has every reason to want revenge, every reason to want him dead. And his only recourse, he feels, is to act shamefully, to act insane. And yet, this has been a story in which God sees him and in which God hears him, and in which God acts on his behalf. David has every reason to give thanks and praise to God for everything that God has done. And yet, as you read through Psalm 34, embedded in this poem, he's not saying, just look what God has done for me. No, he's saying, this is what God has done for me, and I believe he can do the same thing for you. He declares, I will praise God, but let the afflicted rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt the Lord together. 
I praise God because of what he's done for me, but he can do it for you as well. And as I listen to David, I am struck by the fact that he's not just praising God, and he's not just uh, giving testimony of what God has done, but in a very real way, he's evangelizing to the people who are around him. So often I think when we think about evangelism, we want to just distill right down just to apologetics, right? We need to have an argument. We need to prove that we're right and others are wrong, that, that the, the arguments that we make, that we need to convince people of their need for Jesus. And let me just say, I don't disagree with that. In fact, this is, this is primarily the way that I am just built as a human being. I, I like to sit down and talk to people about why the scriptures that we have are, are, are accurate and trustworthy, I like to talk about the fact that we know that the man Jesus was a real historical figure and that he really was crucified. I, I like to talk about the fact that his first followers made this claim that he was raised from the dead and, and none of them backed down from it and what that could mean for us and hope for our future. I like the apologetic side of sharing your faith. And so I'm not saying that knowledge and apologetics in some measure of debate are not useful and that's sometimes needed, but, but here we're reminded of the power of bearing testimony of telling the story, not a hypothetical, this is just what scripture says, but to say, this is what Jesus has done in my life. David is saying, this is my story. Let me tell you how God has shown up, how he's made all the difference for me. That every time I give myself to him, he has shown up, and not one time has he let me down. What a powerful way to consider how you might share your faith with your friends or your family or, or your neighbors. Instead of arguing that you're right and they're wrong, being able to share what you know to be factually true in your own life, being able to share that you've given your life to Jesus, and even though things haven't always been easy, right, they, they aren't. In fact, sometimes when we give our faith to Jesus, our lives get a little more unruly, right? But you can say that he's been at work in real and tangible ways. And so in your own life, and, and there's so many people in this room, how, all of our stories are different, but as you think back, the journey that has led you to this day, if you were going to sit down and write your own psalm, what kind of a story would you be able to tell about what Jesus' faithfulness has done for you? Maybe you were carried through a season of unemployment, and it led to an unexpected job. Maybe there was relational discord between family members, between a parent and a child, but, but in some unknown way, Jesus has shown up and brought wholeness and reconciliation. Maybe yours is a story of being alone. But you found Jesus, and with Jesus, you found the community of Jesus' people. And they're not perfect, but you know that you belong, and you know that you were loved. David bears testimony, and he says, this has been my experience with God, and it can be your experience too. And so he moves from there, this, this bold way of sharing his faith, and he invites those who are listening uh, with wisdom. How might you choose to live. And so he writes this. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Fear the Lord, all you saints. And when David says, fear the Lord, David is not insinuating that God is this vengeful, angry God that we need to pacify. No, no, he is talking, this is an appropriate response in order to approach God. This is the God who made all things, who created the heavens and the earth, all that is above and all that is below that everything around us is under his care and his control. He's a mighty God. He's a powerful God. He is a, a holy God. And if this is who God is, then there's probably an appropriate way that we are to come before him. And David is saying to come with reverence, to come with respect, 
You might know the great line that gets quoted so often from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, where the children are gathered and they're being told that Aslan is coming. They find out that Aslan is a lion. And so the question between Lucy and Susan is that, you know, is Aslan uh, safe? It's a good question if you're going to meet a lion, right? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And David reminds his audience of this. He says, fear the Lord, but taste and see that he is good. That he is good. And so he says, come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I will show you the manner by which you are to live before him. And this is how he sums it up. This is in the very middle of the poem. He says, whoever of you loves life, and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And so the first way that David instructs us is that we would be people who keep our tongues from evil, that we wouldn't speak lies, that we wouldn't speak deception. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we were rooted in Psalm 15, didn't we? We said, who is it that can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can dwell in his presence? And it's this idea of uh, the one who is righteous is the one who guards their mouth, that whose speech indicates the truth and integrity of what is happening on their inner self. Jesus in Matthew 15 instructs in the same way. He tells his listeners, look, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes anybody unclean, but it's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. The way to live the life of God is to be truth-tellers, to be those who guard their lips from deceit and from lies and from slander. Second thing David instructs us is to turn from evil and do good. You know, you know that saying, that actions speak louder than words. It can't just be what you say. You have to, to back it up with who you are. And David reminds us that it's not just about guarding our tongues, but that we're refrained from doing evil and that we would turn towards doing that which is good. And the biblical concept at play here is the word that we don't talk in there enough about, but it's the idea of repentance. That we recognize that the way that we were going in our own strength, in our own energy, maybe dictated by the way that the world tells us we should live, that it's not leading us anywhere good. And we come to the recognition of the realization that this is leading me off the path and I actively turn and I make my way back to what God says is right, what God says is true. And repentance, we have to understand, is not a one-time thing. It's not this one-time thing we just check a box, like I repented one time and now I'm, I'm good. This is an ongoing part of our life, an ongoing practice that in our humanity, we all slip off course. We all begin to pick up different things from the world around us, or we just begin to believe the lies that we tell ourselves. And so we're invited to continue to pay attention to how the world is seeking to form us. We were praying that for our students today, weren't we? That the world is trying to form them in a particular way in their relationships or in their ethics, in the way that we use money or time, the things that we value, the things that motivate us in life the way that we see other people and maybe how we treat them. And so we need to pay attention to what God says about every part of our lives, internal life, external life. And where we see that we're off course, we need to release it. And we need to turn back to him in repentance and choose what he says. It's the ongoing practice of choosing Jesus over everything and anything else. And then finally, David says, 
Would you be people who seek peace and pursue it? Shalom, that great Hebrew word, would be the end goal of who we are. That the people of God don't stir up trouble, we don't create division or discord, but rather we are working towards shalom, right? The the idea that all things are working the way they were designed to work, that everything is in harmony as God intended. We talked about this a few weeks ago as well, the idea of righteousness, right? That I am in right relationship with myself and I am in right relationship with my neighbors, whether they're uh, part of my faith community or not. And I'm in right relation with the created world in which I live and I'm in right relationship with the God who made me. But the pursuit of shalom also encompasses the idea of justice. It's not just about righteousness that I'm doing the right thing. It's that we're seeking that which is right for the world, that the world itself is operating how it's supposed to. And so in the places that we see disharmony or or discord or injustice, the people of God are actually invited to step into those places, to be people who work towards seeing things made uh, right or or justice being carried out. And so to to belong to Jesus is never just about my own inner life. And it's not even just about like how I can like cuddle up in community with other Christians, but that I'm actually being pushed further and further out into a dark world that I bring the light of Jesus with me and that I work towards justice, that I bring wholeness and peace and justice to bear as an expression of the kingdom of God. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, David says, that an inner goodness would be expressed in speaking truth, that there would be an ongoing commitment to repenting and returning to what God says is right and good, and that there would be an engagement in the world around us to bring peace and wholeness and justice. And so that brings us to our third movement. And David has told us the testimony of what God has done. He has invited his listeners to live appropriately. And now he says there's an assurance you can have about who God will be in your life. And he writes these words. He says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers them from them all. David's testimony has been that again and again in his own life, God has seen him in the darkest spots, has seen him in the troubles, and he has brought him rescue. And David is saying to those that belong to God, God is paying attention to you. His eye is on you. His ears are attuned to your cries. He will hear and he will act. We are told that that God is close to the brokenhearted. Where are you brokenhearted this morning? That his desire is to save those who are crushed in spirit. We're reminded again that belonging to God does not mean life will be smooth without difficulty, but it does mean that when heartache and struggle come, you do not navigate that alone. I am with you forever. He is close by. A righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord will deliver them. To the ones who belong to God, in all circumstances, there is assurance and there is hope that God is paying attention and that he will work on your behalf. That is his promise. His promise is that he will ultimately deliver you. Look at this final line in the psalm. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. That is the promise of ultimate deliverance, that no matter what comes, 
Yours is a story of redemption. Yours is a story where you've been rescued from condemnation. The ultimate hope is not that life would be easy. David's life up until this point has had plenty of trouble. And if you keep reading the story of David, it doesn't get any better. In fact, in a lot of ways, it gets worse. He'll go on to face trials and heartaches and consequences of his decisions. There's going to be disruption in his family and in the way that he, he rules Israel. But God remains faithful to him. And God remains faithful to the promise that he'll deliver him to the end. And the assurance is this, is that whatever storm is raging around you in life, God has his eye on you. He hears your cry for mercy. And he draws near in compassion and tenderness, and he will redeem you. And his intention is to bring you home to him. You see, woven through all of Psalm 34 is the hope of the gospel. The idea that God is the God who sees us in our lostness. That he sees us uh, in our own sinful choices or in a broken world that's gone off the rails and we're reminded that God is the one who's acted for us. That he's acted on our behalf in Jesus. That if we would turn from our own sin and our own rebellion, our own brokenness, if we would trust in the death and the resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, that he would redeem us that he would hear our cry and he would respond, that he would set us free and he would give us life. This is what David knew to be true of God, that he was attentive, that he would act on his behalf. And you know, it might be easy for us to kind of just brush that off because it's David, right? And David was anointed to be king and so he was special to God. So of course God would work on his behalf. But consider what David has written in this psalm about what it looks like to live out the fear of the Lord to live a life of faith. Did you catch the line where he said, to keep one's lips from lies, to do what is right? See, there's so many instances in David's life where he was faithful to God, where he trusted and he obeyed. But the account that this psalm is specifically connected to is a time when David's life, he was in desperation. And he began out of fear and desperation to take matters into his own hands. And so what do we find him doing? We find him lying to a priest, telling him that he's got a bunch of men with them and that they've consecrated themselves and that they're on a special mission from God. None of that was true. But he says what he needs to say in order to get bread. He says what he needs to say in order to get a sword. And then he goes and puts himself in a precarious situation. He goes and lives among the enemy. And again, he attempts to take matters into his own hands. He brings shame on himself. I'll just pretend to be insane. I can figure this out myself. And I think when David reflected back on this story and all the stories of his life, he recognized and was reminded it wasn't his actions that drew God to be faithful to him, that drew God to deliver him. It was God's faithfulness to him. I think David, more than maybe any character in the Old Testament, understands grace and mercy and love. And when he comes to the realization, he allows that to prompt him to a place of praise and that he would respond in choosing again and again and again to live the way that God has invited him to live. And he knows he'll fail. He knows he'll fall short. And yet he knows every time he turns back in repentance, mercy is given. That's Psalm 51, right? He makes the, maybe the worst decisions of his life, and he repents, and God receives him.
That is the thing that Jesus is inviting us into today, that we would turn to him in repentance, that we would find grace and forgiveness, and then to be called into a life that follows him with the assurance that he is with us and that he is for us, and that he promises us that he'll deliver us through all things. It may not be in the timeline that we want, but the plan is that he will bring us to life. And that is what we remember as we come to the table, bread and cup representing the body of Christ broken, the blood of Christ shed on the cross for us. Here are symbols of sacrificial love. That in Jesus, God sees us in our helpless estate, and he acts decisively for us. That he breaks the chains of sin and shame and death itself, and he sets us free, and he invites us into his life forever. The table speaks to us of that mercy and of that grace and of that love. It reminds us that we are not alone and that he is with us and he is still actively delivering us from all things to bring us to him. And so the ushers are going to come in a moment and they're going to pass out uh, the bread and the cup. And just a reminder, like we say every week, they're stacked cups. And so uh, the juice is at the top and there's a little wafer in the bottom one that's a gluten-free wafer. And you can take time as, as you take uh, the cup and the two cups, if you want to reflect, if you want to think, is there something I need to bring to God today? Is there something I need to confess and bring to him? You need to know that his eyes are on you and that his ears are attentive to your voice. And so if you have to bring some sin in confession, understand that he is there to offer grace and to remind you of his mercy. If it's been a week in which you have felt overwhelmed or alone, you need to understand that and be reminded that he is near to you and that he is there to bring you rest and to bring you comfort. And so we're going to pray. We're going to give thanks to the one who delivers us from all of our troubles and the one who is with us every step of the way until he brings us home in him. And so would you pray with me? Our God and Heavenly Father, we are reminded that you are the same God that was active in the life of David as inactive in our lives today. And the great hope that we have is in Jesus, the one that you sent to take upon himself the sins of the whole world. That on the cross and in his death and in his resurrection, he pays the price, but he breaks the chains and he ushers in your new kingdom of everlasting life, which is stronger than death. And so as we come again to the table and we take bread and we take cup, we want to give space for your spirit to speak to us, to remind us of who we are. And in the places where we, we feel short, we've fallen short, we're reminded that we're not to feel shame, but we're to give it to you in repentance and that we receive grace and mercy and love. And so for those who need to hear that, Father, I pray your spirit would speak that. For those of us who feel like we're alone and that we're misunderstood, I pray that as we come to the table, you would remind us that we belong to you, that you are our true identity and that you receive us and that you will never let us go. And so as we uh, eat and drink now, we do so with grateful hearts. We do so to prompt us to praise your name because you are the one who saw us and you heard our cries and you were attentive to us and you've rescued us in Jesus. And so we say thank you to you once again, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions or thoughts on this teaching, feel free to reach out because we love to connect. For more information about our church and all the things happening in the LRC community, you can visit our website at lrc.church. See you next time.